And I think, you know, as, as we think about that and we go back and connect it to the academics and the idea of productive struggle or, or academic struggle, depending on what you call it, the only way you can effectively struggle is if you have time to recuperate from that struggle, right? It's, it's, it's no different than, than athletics or exercise or working out, right? I mean, you can go really hard. It can be, it can be, you can be sore. It can be painful. It can be tough. And then to do it again, you need to, you need to rest and recover. And the cycle and the structure of schools is not always set up to provide that because there's so much pressure for everything to be so important. Welcome to Education on the Rocks. I'm your host, John Bullock, and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host, George Hegarty. George, how are you doing today? I'm well. How about you, John? Good to hear your voice. Yeah, it's been a couple of weeks since we were able to get together and uh, get another episode recorded. And uh, since that time, uh, school is fully underway for me and it just started for you. Uh, what was the first week? What, what did the first week look like for you? You know, it was good. I mean, honestly, it was the first time I, I've been down here for this is the beginning of my third year. And this is the first time that the town and the campus are fully, it feels like fully occupied. And so it, there are more people around than I have seen in a long, long time, which is really exciting. Uh, but also it kind of reminds me of, you know, how much we have gone through the last couple of years. Yeah, there's definitely a different energy on campuses, uh, you know, both at the, the K-12 level and at the university level. Just the experience seems to be back even though I think there are fewer people enjoying the experience. Uh, and uh, there's, you know, a lot of uh, still, I think, trepidation from some folks. Um, it, it certainly feels more like it did uh, before 2020, that's for certain. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I think that hopefully we can get to a place where our enrollments are up, you know, across the country again. And, um, and I think that it will just take a little bit of time to see, to see what um, – what that is going to look like and, and how we can get people back involved in, in the education system, which I think we'll talk a little bit about today with transitions, um, transitioning between different educational environments. Right. And uh, I'm excited to do that. Uh, we are going to do our part to help get people back in the swing of school by uh, continually posting education on the rocks. And it's called On the Rocks because when we record this podcast, George and I each uh, enjoy our own whiskey. And so, uh, George, what are you drinking today? I'm drinking uh, Crater Lake rye. So I snuck up to Bend for a couple of days uh, last weekend and picked up a couple of bottles from right downtown Bend. Um, so kind of adjacent to your hometown and my old hometown up there in Oregon. And it's a, it's a really good, uh, it's an 80 proof rye. So it's not overly potent. It's, it's, uh, it's a smooth uh, they say it has uh, creamy toffee and vanilla notes. I'll take them at their word. Uh, to me, it just tastes like a good rye. How about you? What are you drinking? Well, th I love rye. In fact, last night uh, I had some smoky double rye, which was uh, delicious. Um, but today I'm drinking New Southern Revival straight bourbon whiskey made with 100% uh, Jimmy Red corn. And I think I've had this before on the pod and we've talked about it. Uh, it's the new Southern Revival brand is a celebration of the diverse agricultural traditions of our region. It's in a true revival spirit. This whiskey began as a labor of love to save Jimmy Red corn from near extinction. Little did we know we were preserving some of the finest whiskey corn in the country. Smooth and silky with a rich, with a rich mouthfeel, this straight bourbon whiskey is our pride and joy. So this is, 
the whiskey that they made out of high wire distilling out of Charleston, South Carolina makes it. Uh, they small batch it. Um, and it's made out of red corn that they uh, saved from extinction. And so it's, uh, it's tasty. It's wonderfully tasty. And it's got a, a great story behind it. So, oh, yeah, that, that's really cool. Yeah. So uh, cheers to you. Cheers. All right. Well, we encourage all of you listening to uh, join us every time we post an episode to talk about education and to take a pause and take a sip. And we'll have you do that right now as we take this quick break before we t- return for Education on the Rocks. It's more than just the facts edition. On August 6, 1991, the first website was created on the World Wide Web. Now in 2022, there are billions of websites online. And did you know that 55% of small businesses don't even have a website? Well, at Mooney Marketing, they lift your business to the next level by designing your business an affordable, mobile-friendly website with professional business photography, video production, SEO, design concepts, and color schemes. As we venture into the next stage of the pandemic, and this is hopefully the end, customers and consumers still are going to search online for more products and companies now more than ever. This Redmond-based marketing firm also offers logo design, advertising, branding, storytelling, and social media marketing services. For more information on Mooney Marketing, check out their website at mooney-marketing.com or give them a call at 541-280-7412. That's mooney-marketing.com. Welcome back to Education on the Rocks, the It's More Than Just Facts edition. Off-air, George and I have often reminisced about the countless high school teachers who told us in no uncertain terms, this will be the most important class of your life. While we're sure, if we could remember anything from any of those classes, that we would have ended up in vans down by the river if not for those teachers' wisdom and often strict discipline, for this episode, we're interested in what really prepares students for success as college students. After spending four more years preparing for college by taking classes, doing homework, creating projects, and taking tests on repeat, many students enter college with good grades and good test scores, but they find themselves struggling when they get on college campuses across the country. So get out your notebooks, create a dialectical journal, and yes, we're going to need you to find your colored pencils because we're wondering what schools need to do to prepare students for the realities of their college years. So George, let's just start. What was it like for you transitioning from high school to college? You know, I felt, um, one, I have a hard <laughs> I have a hard time honestly remembering it uh, as it was that long ago, but uh, I felt really, really prepared, and I think it was overwhelmingly. I, I went to a public high school that was designed, if you can believe this, if you can believe this, it was actually designed, their mission when they started in the 60s was they were preparing public high school students to be able to enroll in Cal Berkeley right out of high school. And so I got really lucky with with the school that my parents kind of, I fell into the, I was right on the edge of the district and I was, I was one of the kids that was, um, even though we didn't have bus service, they said they were busing us in. How about you? So for me, the transition from high school to college just seemed to kind of happen, to be honest with you. Because one, I wasn't sure that I was even going to go to college. And then uh, in terms of preparing for college, I cannot remember anything specifically that my high school did to prepare me. And for any of my high school teachers who are listening, I'm confident you put in great effort to make that happen. And I might not be remembering it correctly. But I don't know that there was anything that specifically took place to get me ready uh, for college. The other thing that's interesting, right, and you alluded to it, it was a long time ago for, for you and for me. Uh, and 
that has an impact on preparation as well, right? Yeah, and that, that, that was kind of my question for you is if you and I remember things similarly and, and we didn't grow up in the same, you know, in the same state, what do you think has changed? Well, I think one of the biggest things that changed is, is technology, really. And I know that's a simple answer and people are like, well, of course, yeah, things are different. But I, I often, you know, explain to uh, students that I work with that when I went to college, we, people didn't even have computers, right? I mean, people were just, it was, it was rare if somebody on your floor had uh, one of the old Apple II computers. And so everything was, was handwritten or typewritten and we didn't have phones to communicate. And um, we registered for classes by standing in line and filling out uh, computer punch cards. And so we didn't have access to information like students today have either. So, so much has changed in that, in that respect. Yeah, I agree. And, and I do remember, I think I was, I was, we were one step ahead of you where I called in on the phone and you had to have a, uh, you know, you had to, you couldn't use a rotary phone because you had to hit the numbers for it to register the beeps in order to register for classes. Totally. Uh, so, you know, I think that, that that's definitely shifted. I also think that um, there's there's an emphasis, and I notice this as a teacher, of students being ahead on their way into college. And I think that kind of like defining what that ahead means, where overwhelmingly what, um, what I think students and schools and parents are chasing are credits, that you come in with X number of credits, that I think that that's kind of shifted the game to where people might not be coming, might not be entering, you know, onto a college campus in the 1A level of a course. They might come in in the 1C level, you know, the third course in the sequence. And I think that that definitely changes the stakes for those students who are, you know, first quarter freshmen or first semester freshmen and, you know, thinking that you've got it dialed in, but then you realize that, oh, this is a very different world. Part of that change is economic as well, right? Because I remember yeah. that my first term of college was uh, maybe a few hundred bucks, right? And so getting ahead in credits really wasn't that big of a deal, though I do recall that I did get some community college transfer credits through my high school now that we're talking about that. Um, but it wasn't economically driven so much uh, as it is today, right? I mean, getting ahead by 12 or 24, 36 credits is economically, uh, something that people think about. Yeah. And it, and it shifts kind of, it shifts the discussion in a lot of ways, because I think that that is one of the things that, that, I mean, private education too, but, but as you kind of allude to, you and I both went to public universities and where we were paying, yeah, in the hundreds, I remember writing a check for $900 for a semester, semester as a master's student, um, back in the late nineties that, you know, that the, the cost to go to a public university, a major public university is, yeah, it's cheaper than a private, but it's still, you know, topping out and, you know, in the high twenties, $20,000 per year, you know, closer to 30 in a lot of instances when you take into account room and board and everything. And that's, that's a very different world that our students are inhabiting. And, so you have this kind of the real justification for for trying to be as advanced as possible going in. But I also think that that kind of the toll that it takes on the student is something that we're not we're not kind of thinking about too much 
um, systemically anyway, when we were in the K-12 system, I, I remember my goal was like, I want my students to be academically successful. And for what that meant, you know, was like, let's get them those credits. But then also starting to think through now, like what kind of, um, for lack of a better term, soft skills are involved in being successful as a college student. I think that's something that we need to really start thinking about. Yeah, I agree. And when we when we brought up this topic, what we were talking about is the student experience and how radically d- different it is. And we started talking about just academically how radically different it is. Uh, and, and it's gr- and the discussion obviously has grown into thinking about the economics, the social impacts, the 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 uh, the mental health aspects of that that change and how significant they are. But let, let's go back just a minute to the academic piece, right? I mean, what. That transition, and we got ready for this by reading about uh, how to study. It was it was an article that we that we uh, that we stumbled upon from NPR about um, how to help college students be successful in college. And one of the issues at work is this concept of notes and note taking. Give me your give me your quick take on on notes and note taking. Well, I think I mean I remember distinctly distinctly. Um, learning, I mean, really scripted methodologies when I was, I think, a freshman in high school where you had to do it this way. And as kind of you alluded to in the intro, the dialectical journal, and there wasn't a lot of emphasis, however, in my education about me developing a system that works for how I organize my thoughts, how I think, and, you know, what's efficient for me. It was kind of, I remember I needed to make my stuff look a certain way in order to acquire the points necessary to do well on that assignment. It had nothing to do with really, how am I going to process that information further? And I also remember that like my notes, it was rare that my notes really um, came in useful as a study tool um, in high school. And then that transitioned radically as a college student where I was relying on my lecture notes almost entirely, you know, to supplement you know, the reading that I was either doing or not doing for my courses at the time. Um, but my notes became invaluable. And I didn't, in my first year, like I did not have a system. Um, and that system developed over time. And that was something that as I kind of entered the teaching profession, I kind of wanted to work with my students to think through like developing systems that work for them rather than for this assignment, we're going to try this note-taking strategy, I was more, um, you know, and this was from the beginning of my career, really more open to the students developing developing tools that work for them and giving them different examples, but not necessarily locking them into a style, you know, that, requ- that required, you know, 50 different colors or tabs or anything like that. It was just what works for you because that does work for some people, but for a lot of people, um, you know, the kind of... Um, making your notes pretty just gets in the way. It's not a good organizational tool. Yeah, I think you hit on some really key points there. One of those is what is the purpose for the note-taking, right? The, and also the importance of an individual developing their own na- note, note-taking style. And when I think about those things, they, they don't always interact well because if you're taking notes for the purpose of meeting a note-taking requirement, that's going to look different than what you need to study. And that's going to look different than what helps you actually learn and retain information. So are, you, are these notes designed to help you cram for an exam? Are they designed to help you solidify your learning? Are they designed to meet a requirement? And each of those notes concepts has a different component. And then 
the other part of it is is that individual style. Like what helps you learn is really important. And when you're talking about, I was reflecting back to before we had electronic uh, planning tools uh, like calendars and meeting schedulers and things like that. People had day runners. Do you remember day runners? Oh yeah, totally. And there were like multi-day courses designed to teach you how to effectively use your day runner, right? Like how to color code tabs, where to put the, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the dividers, um, how to write in things into your planner. And it was all designed about how to make the planner work, not how to make the planner work for you. And I'm always thinking about that when I think about note taking, right? Is it how you, you need to find a way to make the notes work for you. And Again, this is a thing where time has shifted incredibly because the key to note-taking today, I think, or one of the keys to it, is identifying from a lecture or a video what are the key points that you can now go back and learn more about because you have access to the information. Whereas before, you didn't have that unfettered access to information and you had to take notes that were far more copious and, and really attempted to be some sort of like transcribing of what a professor was saying because you wouldn't be able to get it anywhere else. And I recall, and you might recall this as well, you remember people like tape recording with audio tapes lectures uh, to try and get the information. Yeah, it was like a Grateful Dead show, you know, yes. where people would put their, their recorders up in the front of the lecture hall and then go sit in the back. And yeah, I remember that distinctly. And I got to be honest with you, I recorded for a while and I never once listened to a recording. <laughs> no. And those tiny little tapes, I mean, what are you, you going to do with those? Um, yeah, I think, and, and I think that that does shift. And we've talked a lot about this. It does, when information is like the facts are so easily and readily available to everyone. I think that the learning is um, transformed because a lot of what, you know, a college education is, is not about memorizing and internalizing some set of facts or data at some level. It is what it is thinking about how to process that. And, and I think that that's something when, if I were to think about a key skill uh, that high school students and high schools can really work with their students to acquire. It is not so much that idea of um, can you memorize these things, but it is what are you going to do with them? Are you asking why they're important so that you can enter into kind of that phase, that kind of um, area of analysis and starting to really problem through um, the information rather than just having it being able to recall it uh, for some purposes, because I don't think exams are are asking students to do that at the university level in the same way as maybe they are still in high schools. Yeah, I would agree with you. And we're, we're talking about studying because the article that we read from Alyssa Nadworty from NPR is called College is Important, So is Mental Health, Here's How to Study Without Burning Out. And so we started by talking about studying because studying can, in fact, cause students uh, at high school and college to absolutely burn out, to, to risk their mental health. And so we want to talk a little bit about what can K-12 schools do, high schools, and what can students do, and what can their families do, and what can universities do to help ensure uh, that students don't burn out, that they, that they do take care of their mental health. And one of the things that uh, 
Nadwerney suggests is learn how to take notes, which we, we've talked about the need to personalize that. Um, then she also uh, talks about the need to have, you know, to get a planner or a planning tool and use it. And, and then she talks about some other studying, but she hits on uh, three other things that I want to get your, get your take on. First one is know that failure is not the end. Take care of yourself and get some sleep and let go of the stigma around mental health problems. Uh, and finally, know when to reach out for help. So right. those, those aspects, thinking about our, you know, the folks that might be listening to the pod and, and our own experience, both as, uh, you know, students and parents of students, um, what, can, what can we tell folks and maybe even talk to some of our university partners about ways they can ensure that, that students take good care of themselves? Yeah, and I think that um, I think that that knowing that first the first point you bring up from the article about knowing that failure is not the end, I think that that's that's a really hard lesson for many of our students to internalize today. And and there's all sorts of data about grade inflation and and things like that, which I'm not so much concerned about. Um, but I think that the that one of the things that we have undervalued in um, in both our high school and then in our undergraduate system is the value of kind of intellectual struggle and that wrestling with ideas sometimes means, and if you're really, if you are really pushing yourself, that there are times that you're, you're going to need a second shot to be successful. Um, and I think that that's, I think that that is um, something that runs counter to a lot of the things that we see um, in society to go back to kind of what you were saying about Technology is that the lives we see pe people leading online, failures are never the things that they're posting, you know, and so our world doesn't, you know, I think that failure can feel really isolating. And um, the other thing that I'm noticing that is very different from when I entered the university is that um, almost um, unanimously, my students come in having uh, had to have declared a major um, to enter the university. And that just is such a very different world where people are tracked into a specific, um, and it's almost like a mini competition amongst your peers of like, oh, I'm studying computer science. And then that's, that's creating these spaces where you're always feeling like you're trying to keep up. Um, and, and I think that what gets lost in this mix is that whether you're on a semester system of 15 or 16 weeks, or you're on a quarter system where you're, where you're working at the college level for 10 weeks and then you have finals, that mastery doesn't happen over those short periods. I talk with my students all the time um, because I'm teaching first year composition right now, that what we don't see is that when, they're, when their professors are publishing articles, that usually that that is a minimum um, from conception to publication of a year, the process. And these are people who are the best of their field. And we're expecting system, uh, systemically students to kind of reach uh, excellence over these very short timeframes that we actually don't ask ourselves to do professionally. And I think that that's something that the university should think about that, you know, uh, what are we expecting students to be able to do in 10 weeks or 15 weeks? And is that realistic within the fields, within kind of like the, the fields that we're working. And, and I think that if universities really thought about it, um, 
that they change some things and realize that kind of the the systems that we're using right now are partly there because it's easy to classify and organize people, not so much teach them. Yeah, I think one of the things that K-12 struggles with and, and the university system struggles with is how much of the bureaucracy drives the student experience. And I, I know that it's easy to use terms like bureaucracy and have that be pejorative and, and it also be a simple uh, intellectual you know, argument. But what I mean is that because of the way things are structured, we create circumstances where student learning maybe doesn't take center stage and where there is a feel of fear of failure because of the cost of it and the uh, emotional toll it takes. And in doing that, you know, in relying on systems, which have to exist, let's, let's not pretend they can't exist. There have to be ways to structure things with, with complex organizations. But it is that reliance on 10 weeks or 16 weeks and all that has to happen in that time period. And the fact that credits count and they count in certain and specific ways. All of those things lead to this potential for burnout for students because they're trying to figure out, particularly in your first year or two of college, how to prioritize what really is important. Because as we started this, right, we're told in high school multiple times, this class is the most important class you're going to take. What this right. assignment is the most important, you know, assignment you're going to do. Uh, you know, you think about what happens on our athletic fields with high school kids, right? This is the most important game of your life. You're going to remember this game for the rest of your life, you know? Yeah. And so now we, we send kids away, uh, kids, and I, I apologize, young adults, uh, older teens away to college. And they're still trying to figure out now which of these things are most important and th their confusion happens, they, they start not sleeping, uh, they develop burnout or mental health issues, in part because the system is set up, the system that is set up creates some of that, right? Yeah, I mean, it is, if, if everything is on a scale of one to 10, a 10 in importance from the time you enter high school as a ninth grader, that you go through four years of that, your tank is drained, I would argue. And, and I see that with a lot of students, you know, I've seen, I see it to a certain degree with, uh, with my own child that like, when you've been getting after it academically, and then also trying to do whatever it takes to kind of prepare your, prepare your application to be successful, to get into the place you want to go, you're tired by when you show up. And, and I think that those, I don't know what we can do to change that, but I think acknowledging, um, acknowledging that is really important and that, you know, ultimately, you know, it gets down to that second point that you brought up from the article of like, it comes down to that it's so easy to not rest and recover as a college student that you have to consciously, you know, block out whatever that time is you need. And I talk about this with people all the time is that, you know, we do need downtime and you definitely need X number of hours of sleep a night. It's not to say that at times you might be less than that, but the reality is, is that you're going to be pushed. All of us are pushed to, um, beyond our limits uh, when we're not when we don't sleep and then that kind of I think feeds into these negative cycles it also gets you sick in all reality like you're going to end up with the flu 
or a cold, and that exacerbates the stress that people are already feeling about like, oh, can I keep up with my courses and can I continue to be, you know, whatever level of successful I'm aspiring to. And I think, you know, as, as we think about that and we go back and connect it to the academics and the idea of productive struggle or, or academic struggle, depending on what you call it, the only way you can effectively struggle is if you have time to recuperate from that struggle, right? It's, it's, it's no different than, than athletics or exercise or working out, right? I mean, you can go really hard. It can be, it can be, you can be sore. It can be painful. It can be tough. And then to do it again, you need to, you need to rest and recover. And the cycle and the structure of schools is not always set up to provide that because there's so much pressure for everything to be so important. Yeah. And to that point, I think the last couple of years of our lives where a lot of our spaces haven't been differentiated, like our workspace and our non-workspaces have kind of flowed together, um, that I think that there is, and, I, and I, I think this is true of students as well, especially students who are working in their dorm rooms, like it's always easy. I think that, you know, people talk about, oh, the pull to watch Netflix or whatever, but there's also the pull for them to get on and do work at any time of the night. And I think trying to block out, and that's where I think a planner or using a calendar effectively can be really beneficial of like, you want to block. I think it's important to block time, but then also to realize, and um, I can't pull up the article right now, but uh, there's an article this week um, that in the New York Times about every uh, American under 65 should have some level of anxiety screening because of, because of having existed, um, in the pandemic for the past couple of years. And I think that that's something that when we are feeling things, um, and I think whether or not, uh, students, friend groups or our adult friend groups are good at talking about it. Um, that when we do feel, uh, levels of distress, like it's really important, uh, to find, to find, um, either the kind of offices on campus who can help uh, or to reach out to kind of uh, friends and they can connect you uh, to professionals that can, that can help us work through what are very real circumstances. Like none of this, uh, you know, as a kind of, you know, as terrible coaches have told me in the past, it's not all in your head necessarily. Right. I think that's a great place for us to, to start to wrap up this conversation is that recognition that, uh, the, these challenges are real, and just because they're happening in places where people presume that uh, folks have it all put together, right? I mean, if, if students are going to college, they must have it put together. If, if people are, are teaching or, or, or professors, they must have it all put together. And the reality is I, I don't know if any of us actually have it all put together, but we live in a society right now that believes that we do uh, in strange ways. And so the idea of knowing when to reach out for help and, and having people reach out to, uh, for help is, is critically important. And I think that's something that in the K-12 system we can do, as parents and family members we can do, and as universities we can do to help all of our students. Because ultimately, uh, the academic progress that a student makes is connected to their ability to uh, have a, a positive mental health experience as well. And so I think this has been a great discussion. Obviously, this is a deep, deep topic and we could break it apart in many ways. We're asking you who are listening, give us your thoughts. I mean, you know, how, how did you navigate the challenges of changing between high school and college? Or how did you navigate the changes between college and becoming a, uh, a member of the workforce or an adult, however you want to describe that? You can find me on Twitter at Speaks. George, where can they find you? 
Uh, I'm at George underscore Hegarty. And we appreciate you listening to Education on the Rocks. You can find us on all of your favorite podcast outlets. Uh, subscribe to us, download it, share it with your friends, give us a five-star review. And if you happen to be a purveyor of whiskey and you want us to drink and talk about your whiskey on our podcast, hit us up uh, and we'll be happy to talk with you about uh, becoming a sponsor of the show. So I uh, want to encourage everybody right now, take a pause, take a sip, and we'll be right back with a segment we like to call After the Ice Melts. Welcome back to Education on the Rocks. Now for a segment we like to call After the Ice Melts. We've drank our whiskey and we've talked about educational issues, and now it's time to figure out what's next. So George, what are you gonna do after the ice melts? So kind of in keeping with the theme of today's discussion, I, uh, I don't talk about this too much on air because partly I'm dreading it, and also uh, I don't know how uh, into it our audience would be, but uh, in, Beginning of November, I'm going to sit for a two-hour oral exam, which will test uh, my nearly 50-year-old brain, I think, at or past its capacity. Um, and so I'm taking a, a test on uh, well over uh, 150 different books. And so I will be spending, speaking of notes and um, study, study tools, I'm going to be writing flashcards for a good portion of the day. So that is, uh, that's kind of my, um, after the ice melts, I didn't ever use until really, and I'm hoping in all honesty, this is the last time I ever make a flashcard in my life, but, um, <laughs> uh, I never used them growing up and, um, and I really feel like it has been when it's information that I need to recall and, you know, when it's copious amounts of information, and a lot of it is like mildly connected uh, to the other pieces <laughs> that I found flashcards and organizing them in different ways and testing myself in different ways is is a great tool for me to feel prepared for these type of these type of exams. Um, so it's not particularly fun, um, but it it is something. That's what I'm going to be doing today. How and, about you? What do you got going? And it's topical, right? How to study? And yeah, that was not that was not intentional at all. I didn't wow. decide. Oh, I'm doing this today. <laughs> well, this may surprise our listeners who are regular listeners because typically when we do After the Ice Melts, George talks about something that is uh, uh, intelligent and sophisticated, and uh, I talk about um, fantasy sports and pro wrestling. So uh, on a <laughs> twist on this, I'm actually, After the Ice Melts, I am going to start reading uh, a new novel that was written by one of my best friends growing up. His name is Chris Grant. And the novel is entitled Waiting Round to Die. And uh, now, full disclosure, Chris and I uh, have played, we still play fantasy sports together, and we also watch pro wrestling together. So there's still that connection. But Chris is an incredible writer. Uh, He's a Hall of Fame sports writer. And uh, now he's a novelist. And so um, I'm excited to read his book. I'm just going to read a little bit to you, uh, um, uh, you know, an intro to it so people have an idea. Great, I'm excited to hear this. Yeah, it's, so Waiting Round to Die by Chris Grant. A mind-bending drive into the abyss. A nameless man, existing perilously close to the edge, flees his suburban home for the open road in a last-ditch effort to connect with the life he once lived. On the road, he finds his long-lost uncle, who takes him on a continent-spanning adventure where they meet Civil War generals, a legendary Navajo, and a rotating cast of characters who may or may not have the answers to the questions this man is asking. 
Over the course of thousands of miles and through countless towns and bars, they hastily push toward the western horizon and the promise it may hold. Waiting Round to Die is an unflinching look at the ravages of time and the quest for meaning in an otherwise inconsequential existence. A sometimes travelogue, mixtape, and recipe book, Waiting Around to Die is at its core a coming-of-middle-age story which takes readers to the very brink of an existential crisis where all bets are off and the future is no longer guaranteed. Wow. Yeah, it's, it is... Um, I am so looking forward to it because I, I, I've talked with Chris a number of times about uh, you know his life experiences and about his desire to write this. Um, he is a, he's a Civil War scholar, uh, um, and he is um, a talented writer. So I'm, I'm super excited about this. So folks, if, if you want to uh, read what is best described as a coming of middle-aged story, uh, and it's a, it is a, uh, a mind-bending drive into the abyss, please check out my friend Chris Grant's book, Waiting Round to Die. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Um, and uh, I'd encourage you to read it. And if you do, let me know what you think. And, and uh, also let Chris know what you think. So that's Yeah, that's great. We can have a spinoff pod. We'll have our own book club too. Yeah, so. it'd be great. So I, I'm hoping it is awesome. Uh, I'm sure that it will be. And I'm just looking forward to diving into it. Yeah, great. Thanks for sharing that, John. Yeah. So uh, folks, thanks for joining us on Education on the Rocks. We appreciate it. We'll be back here soon with uh, more talk about education issues and of course, uh, more drinking and talking about whiskey. So uh, until then, uh, find me on Twitter at jbullockspeaks. Find George at George underscore Hegarty. And we look forward to hearing from you. Uh, Thanks for tuning in and we'll be back soon. All right. Cheers, everybody. Thank you for listening to Education on the Rocks. You can connect with us on Twitter George is at George underscore Hegarty, and I am at Jay Bullock Speaks. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, and please give us a rating on iTunes and leave a comment. Until then, look for us next week as we continue to discuss education on the rocks.